This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This content is supported by Allergan Medical Affairs. Hi everyone, this is Vanessa Vera, and I'm here today with Dr. Luis Abigail Pinto, who is one of my co-authors on a paper that we published recently in Current Trends in Ophthalmology, titled Navigating Zen Challenges After Zen, which is a paper that we wrote uh, sharing our learning experiences and try to share with our colleagues different complications that can happen after you implant Zen. We focus on trying to understand why these complications happen looking into some of the risk factors that a patient can have, or maybe some surgical mistakes that uh, sometimes we make during our learning uh, curves of the procedure. And to be eventually able to understand why they, they happen and how can you avoid them or prevent some of these complications from happening uh, later on in your, in your experience. Uh, and for those of you guys who have patients that might be going through any of these complications, we also discuss different management and treatment options based on our experiences that hopefully will be able to help your patients recover. So Luis, thank you so much for joining me today uh, and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Uh, do you wanna first introduce yourself? Tells us a little bit about uh, when did you start using Zen? How has been uh, how was your experience in the early days and has it changed since then? Uh, hello there, uh, Vanessa. Um, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to, to share our experience um, and for being co-author in this paper. Um, where I'm, I'm based in Lisbon at Lisbon University, Portugal's largest hospital. And uh, we're a tertiary center, so we're, where complicated cases ca come from. We started Xens um, around 2016, uh, so around almost five years now. Well, time flies. Um, and we implanted a few hundreds. Um, and um, based on the experience, well, I have to tell you, I have a tough story with, with Xen to start with. And because I think I've done all the mistakes that people usually do when they start something which is, oh, I have a new tool, I have a new toy, and uh, all those cases that I've been struggling or not wanting to do a trap or trying to avoid to do something, and then all of a sudden you choose the first six of those and, you've, and you start. And I have to tell you my first, because of this, we're not exactly optimal, and um, I've learned from my mistakes, and I learned that patient education and actually taking care was um, was was very much important and should be on the top of my list. I I stopped for two weeks. I went to a tertiary center that was already high volume, good experience. So I flew to Belgium to Ingeborg, and I noticed how she did it. And so because if the device was working with everyone else except me, well, I was the one driving on on the other side of the road, which means that I had to learn what I had, what I was doing wrong, because if everyone else is having a success and I'm doing it wrong, then... And when I came back, then things started to go well. I noticed that I was selecting very bad cases, probably two cases or, or patients who had a terrible conjunctiva to start with. So uh, those were the cases actually, I mean, as it is with any learning curve, you get the complications when you start 
and then when you already have experience, you stop having that many complications. Um, so uh, we're on we're cruise control now, and we now identified um, the target population where we think Zen positioned itself well. And so we're basically uh, doing those on, on mild to moderate cases, combining them or not with FACO, um, where they're trying to use the nasal um, superior uh, quadrant, which allows you to have any leverage from then on. But uh, trying to use the capabilities of, of Xen to minimize pressure to a level that usually MIGs don't do, but still keeping uh, all your options open for, for a later stage if you need. Nice. That's, that's very, very, thank you for sharing that story. That's something I, I hear a lot that, you know, people just start maybe a little bit rocky and a lot of people sometimes just quit or is they don't put the extra effort like you did. So congratulations for uh, putting yourself into the learning, uh, you know, hat again, going to Ingeborg and trying to figure out what was it that you were doing wrong. And I'm happy to hear that it was a, a, a good story with a happy ending at the end. So uh, for, this, for this podcast, we're going to talk about suboptimal blebs that uh, can happen after Zen. And our first topic are going to be about those big, prominent, or nasally located blebs. So let's first start with, in your view, what is an ideal uh, bleb? Well, the ideal bleb has to be something that the patient doesn't notice. So patient's comfort from point of view, how do you, and while still providing a very good IOP control. So how do you achieve that? You have to put the conjunctival bleb away from the limbus, away from where the eyelid touches more the eye, which is actually the nasal part. So it's a little bit more challenging. And you have to be sure that as posterior as it can be, and you have to make sure that it's smooth so that the, the tear film is actually spread around and that the patient doesn't complain that any uh, dry eye or any delin exists because there's some high, like a mountain that casts a shadow. Good points. So let's talk about the risk factors. And you mentioned, I have a, a good friend, Davinder Grover, who says, in the glaucoma world, we have to get burned before we learn. And, and that was kind of your story at the beginning. So let's let's share here, what have you learned? What you got burned in the past into what are the risk factors that can give you those nasal prominent uh, limbal blebs that we don't want in our patients? If they usually start with the first cases, well, the first cases here usually are that lady, which is already on prostaglandins for quite some time and has a very small um, opening of the, of the eyelids. That will make your access harder. And unless you make the extra mile to try to expose that quadrant as much as possible to make sure your markings are where you want them to be, it's very easy if they have a very small uh, opening of the eyelids that you just say, okay, I, I can't expose the 12 o'clock. I won't hurt the patient or I won't rotate and I'll just settle for something that I can see. And it happens to be almost that uh, a lot more nasal than you intended. So this is why first step, especially if you're starting thing, no, no, I want to be as close to the 12 o'clock as I can. Even if I have a strange anatomy, I have to make sure that I do the extra mile because that's especially on eyes where I have some encyclo torsion. And we know this because sometimes even with traps or tubes, 
you look at them and say the day one thing, I'm pretty sure I didn't place it that well. Uh, but you only no notice that the day after, because while the patient is lying there, you have those in-cycle torsions. And what you thought was 11 actually was nine. And then by that time, you look at the patient saying, oh, this is a little bit too low. I should have aimed higher. So if you don't mark it, and most of us don't do those markings for the in-cycle rotations, that's one extra thing for you to choose as 12 o'clock as possible. If you're right, it's good. If there's a 10 degrees of 15 degrees of in-cycle torsion, you're still superior. So there's less chance. So choose a good speculum, ask the patient to move their eyes to make sure that when you do those markings for three millimeters, you know more or less that even if there is some movement and you're not exactly, that won't be the position the patient will be when it's uh, um, standing up you still know it will be under the eyelid. So those would be the risk factors is the surgeon not doing the extra mile. That's one risk factor. Uh, you want to make sure that you put the anti-metabolites as posterior as possible. This is a big trick because most of us who do um, glaucoma surgeries, you, we usually do mitomycin on sponges. So you're doing a lot of learning curves at the same time. And you, by that time, you're too worried about how do I put my hand over the xen and how do I slide it? And that's where you think it's the big priority. And that's where you think, oh, this is what's going to make the big difference. And you're sort of focused on that and you forget everything else. And you don't value this initial part of the surgery. So you have to think, okay, I'm not, I'm used to sponges. I'm not used to inject. I have to inject further away from the places I marked. And then I, with a swab, I just slide it a little bit over the three millimeter, but all, I mean, three millimeters away from the limbus at least to make sure that, I mean, even with the patient, then it will, it will blink and it will spread that mitomycin uh, a little bit. So you have to be sure that you're killing the cells in the area you want to construct your blood and you want to make it as posterior as possible. The volume, of course, it's, it depends. And I have to tell you, I've tried everything. When I was having a rocky learning curve, I've tried mitomycin 0 0.2, 0.4, 1cc, 2ccs, um, because I, I, was, I was still not getting it then. And, and then it, it struck me, it's not really about the volume and the final dose. It was really more about selecting the good patients where, where the Xen was likely to work. And because instead, instead of fighting a bad conjunctiva, I should have chosen a good conjunctiva, or at least trying to make it a better conjunctiva, and then do the surgery. It, it, you have to calm the eye, make sure it's a white eye, and then you do the surgery with a good safety profile. So you don't have to go over the line of injecting mitomycin over the top. So I would recommend not operating red eyes. Okay, nice. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, so let's talk about management. Let's say you did try your best to place it at 12 o'clock, or you did try your best to place the MMC as posterior as possible with a lower volume. But still, as you said, the patient comes at day one, week one, month one, and you start seeing that a bleb starts to form nasally or is prominent and is bothering the patient. Is there something early on that you recommend doing to try to modulate this bleb shapes? 
Well, there's several chances, there are several tricks you can try. Um, of course, you always have to think um, if IOP is well under control. That's still your one topic that you should not forget. Not all prominent bleb are functioning bleb, so that will change your strategy or your treatment. But let's consider for the sake of argument that you have a very low IOP. You're, both you and the patient are very happy with the, the outcome in terms of IOP. You just want to make it comfortable. So what you're trying to do is trying to make sure that the, the layers of the conjunctiva that you've dissected glue back together. Uh, it doesn't need to be all the way through. Otherwise, you may have higher IOPs because the bleb might close. But if you notice that early on, that conjunctiva becomes a little bit dissected nasally, you can try to, um, I mean, you can lower the dose of the steroids trying to increase scarring a little bit, although that risks being entirely over the entire bleb area. So you have to, if you are going to use that strategy, you have to see the patient more often to make sure that you don't scar where you don't want them to scar. <laughs> but you can always ask the patient to, um, I mean, have a, a patch over the eye if needed to make sure that the eyelid stays glued together. You can always try to use the same tricks you, you have from the trap book. So if you have a bleb that's working not what you want, you can try to do bleb remodeling by trying to use aqueous suppressants to make sure that you give time to those fibroblasts to do their thing, to try to make sure that you have enough fibrogen over there to glue that, those layers um, back together. This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. Okay, so then in those cases, so I would say if you have those blebs that are prominent and on top of that your IUP is not a target or if it's if it's happening I guess too late in the post-op where you don't think fibrosis or healing is going to help you out you prefer to go and do a surgical revision well well yes I mean if I've if I've come to that it means that I'm not happy with the IUP and I'm and both me and the patient are not happy with the discomfort it has uh, I have a little bit of difficulties telling the patients that, okay, we have to go back to the OR. So I need to make sure that that time counts. So it needs to work that time around. If I do a revision, I can take the conjunctiva out. I can test for patency for the exam. I can even add more mitomycin or some other antifibrotics on a different layer, because if you excise that topic, you, you can probably touch and move the conjunctiva to see how flexible, how mobile, how phreactic it is. And that way you have more or less leverage to do revision. Um, that is if you've given up on the, on the tissue that's proeminent and avascular. So if it's already avascular and long-term down the line, I would recommend you revise. You have an increased chance of success and most likely you can still have a very good um, bleb um, over the, the, the exam without actually having to change the implant. But if you do have a low IOP and you think this is an over filtrating because the conjunctiva just simply doesn't offer resistance. And so the aqueous humor just pours out and dissects all the tissue because the conjunctiva forgot to fight back. Then you can try to do the, the same tricks you do on the tram. Um, the easiest one although it's not the more effective, but this is something you can do at the slit lamp or at, at the, in the office, is to try to inject autologous blood. So you just ask your nurse to take 
two cc's, you ask for a 30g gauge and it, you inject a little bit more nasal, the fibrin inside that will act as a glue. It may not be as effective because if, if simply the conjunctiva does not offer resistance, you're just probably increasing one or two millimeters or, but maybe it's enough on those very mild cases and the patient already has a very good humor and that might be enough. Um, although if it's not, um, and if you have to take them to the OR and if the pressure is low and you're just aiming to increase resistance, then I, I would do the, the Palmer sutures um, and I would just make sure that I would get restrictions on the places I think that would make it still work. So the area I'm locking um, would be still enough to have low IOP, but I'll try to take it away from, from the, the opening of the eyelid. So not nasal. Okay. C can you explain for those listeners who are not or have never done the compression uh, palm bunk sutures, can you explain a little bit more the technique of how you actually do a compression uh, suture? There are several variations from the technique, um, but what usually happens is that you put either, um, it depends, but let's go for a, a 10 O or, or an 8 O nylon, uh, usually a 10. Uh, what usually happens is that if you compress, so you don't open the bleb, that's the beauty of it, you don't open and you're just squeeze and you just make um, like, so you make a passage over the cornea and then you make a passage over, let's say five or six millimeters behind the limbus. And you make like a track, like a railway track uh, between the cornea and the posterior segments of the, of the sclera. That way you have a, and you just make one knot uh, and you have like a square or a rectangle between the cornea and let's say six millimeters behind the limbus or, or seven. And when you make the knot and you make it very tight, you will see that that knot will be brought to the level of the episclera. So this might be a little bit discomfort for the patient. So I wouldn't recommend to do this outside the, the OR, although I've seen it doing it at the slit lab. Some are very, some people are very brave, both surgeons and patients. Um, but what happens is, is like you create a dam. So there's no liquid that won't be able to, to pass. And so the bleb will become higher. So this is why it needs to be below the, um, oh, sorry, it needs to make sure that those sutures are enough that the bleb, which will become higher because it now the liquid is pouring itself into a wall. And so it will rise up and it has to be kept beneath the upper eyelid. Um, about that, it's impressive because if you, if you tie it very tightly, it will be go underneath the conjunctiva. So if you've done this and you've buried it underneath the cornea, you may leave it there for many weeks and you may not even want to take it out if you've done it underneath the, the cornea epithelium and it can stay there for quite some time. If you don't want to do that and the patient is brave, you can always des design and draw a line over the blood with a cautery. The problem is the cautery is a little bit aggressive. The heat and the scarring might bring you from a very, very low IOP to very aggressive scarring and you end up, I mean, one month or two months after with a high IOP and a failed lab. So you have to walk a thin line if you're going that aggressive into a, into a conjunctival. 
Okay, good, good points. Yeah, I, I also, I think I've used the cutter. You have to be very, very careful and gentle. And I actually also like Vicryl. I think that the inflammation that it actually creates is, is actually helpful to seal it down. Now let's, let's change to a different part of, of this abnormal blebs that we don't want. Let's talk about uh, vascular blebs. So what do you think is the, the, the risk factors that we should watch out for? And we kind of touched that point, but let's just emphasize on for a vascularity per se. A vascularity usually happens when you're, I mean, the dosage that you've put on mitomycin was a little bit too much for that conjunctiva to, to handle. Probably, I mean, if you stratify your risk patients and, you, and you've seen a very red conjunctiva, you may have gone overboard with, with the mitomycin that you should have brought. So I would recommend not to overdose of mitomycin. I would just try to keep the eye calm before you go in. So you don't have to go to too many dosage of, of mitomycin. The place and the location, it's important. And of course, the, the risk factors. I mean, if you, risk factors in terms of, of blood failure. If you have um, a very uh, old lady with a very white conjunctiva, and then you've poured more mitomycin over there than the, that the lady needed, then if there was few fibroblasts there and you've killed 95% of them, you're in for trouble. So if you have that old lady, um, white, no previous surgery, one drop that for some reason stopped being compliant because let's say the hands were shaking or something, and you say, I, you can't use the same strategy if it's a very red eye with 10 years of three drops. So you have to adapt for that. Okay. That, that makes sense. So let's talk about that patient where you have this beautiful IOP and you don't, you don't want to touch it because it's just perfect, exactly what you were hoping for. But it turns out that it has this horrible avascular blood that is just looking at you and telling you you're going to get in trouble at some point. How do you handle those? Do you observe them? Do you do something right away? Well, um, it depends if, if the patient has discomfort, that's one extra weight I put on the balance to go there and intervene. But if you're imagining a scenario where you're the only one worried and that the patient is so happy because he stopped putting his drops and that he doesn't mind putting an artificial here, here and then when you, when you actually have something, well, he can always go to Florida or places where you have humidity high enough that it doesn't, it doesn't hurt them. So you can even, as long as you don't live in Arizona, I think it's fine. Um, but the concept here would be, if you're the only one worried, I, I usually discuss this with patient and I say, there's some chances that you might get in trouble. Um, if you do, you just uh, come here and we can do something about that, although we will be already running late. So it's, it's, a, it's an informed decision that we take with them. What we usually try to keep is that the eyelid as free as bacteria as possible. So if I am not intervening and if we decide the chances, let's say it's our 15% in five years, a patient might come to me, oh, 15% is too much. But some of them will just say, okay, 85% is great. I don't have that chances uh, on all diseases I have. Um, so what we usually come up with agreement is that you have to treat their blepharitis chronically to make sure that there's not enough bacteria over there to make sure one of them gets into the wrong places. So they have to make sure that they don't scrub. They have to have their hands clean because it's inevitable if they, if they um, touch their eyes or to touch their eyelids. But uh, if it's a very, imagine a diabetic patient with very poor hygiene, 
it's not something I'm comfortable. And then I go and revise, okay. even if it's what, a good IOPRI. What would you do in those revisions? If you have signs or something, some oozing or something that is telling you this is going to get or super high risk of, of, of blebitis and eventual endophthalmitis, I have to do something for this patient. What would you do? Well, in the, if you're asking the technical aspects of the revision, so I go in, first thing I do, because if I, I, you have to remember, if you're starting this, you're already in low IOP. So your target for your patient's point of view is that I'm just getting a little bit uh, more comfortable and I want to get a void of having a blobitis, but I still want to be drop-free. So you don't have a lot of leverage there. So my strategy is usually I, I go into the AC, I pressurize it to make sure that I have a, a pressurized interior chamber. Then I go for the conjunctiva, I excise all, all that I need. I put mitomycin on the posterior conjunctiva and I make a conjunctival advancement. Because you have to remember, even though it the mitomycin that got me in trouble, if I don't use it, I, the, there's not that many chances that the, the surgery from the IOP point of view will be success. So I still need to use it. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you for sharing your insights and your pearls with our listeners. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise.